I think there were babies in this crowd as well, but I can't be sure. Luke chapter 7. We're studying through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we're in chapter 7, verse 18. We're going to read verses 18 through 35. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitude concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, Ah, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. Let's pray together. Lord, you promised that your word would be alive and powerful, that it could divide into the deepest part of our heart. We want it to do that today. Uh, Lord, not to necessarily expose things, but to enrich us and to encourage us and to edify us, to give us a clearer picture of Jesus Christ and His love for us, that if perhaps we have drifted from and left our first love for the Lord, we would quickly return and fall excitedly, romantically in love with Him again. Lord, we have a, a sense that You're here. First of all, You've promised that You would be, and we take You at Your word. But also, Lord, we, we do, in a spiritual sense, sense that You're here. And I pray that You would speak clearly and directly to my heart and to everyone's heart, Lord, about the wonder of Your love. We pray in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, Amen. I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Do you remember that one? You're going to want to remember that. That's a good one. I use it all the time in counseling. 
it is one of the great schoolyard sayings, one of those quick, catchy, cutting remarks that puts you one up on whoever was calling you names. There's a saying like that in our text. Jesus quoted it in verse 32 when he said, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. The saying described kids who refused to play with the other children because they couldn't have things their way. We call them brats. When the other kids wanted to play the flute and dance, they refused to join in. Likewise, when the other kids wanted to play a more serious game, they refused to join in. The brat pack Jesus was describing was not a group of children, however. It was a group of adults, the Pharisees and the lawyers who criticized both Jesus and John the Baptist for their distinct styles of ministry and who would join neither. Look again at verses 33 and 34. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he's got a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Before we get down on the Pharisees and lawyers, we should notice that some disciples had problems too. John the Baptist himself sent two disciples to ask Jesus if he were really the Messiah. It seems the Jesus style of ministry troubled believers as well as unbelievers. The Jesus style still troubles us, believers and unbelievers. It troubles us differently, and that is what I want to talk about today. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, don't let yourself be stumbled by the Jesus style. And number two, don't leave yourself stymied by the Jesus style. First of all, we're going to take a look at verses 18 through 23, where we see that you should not let yourself be stumbled. Now, John the Baptist was in the dungeon of Machaerus. It's a desert fortress palace of Herod. He had criticized Herod's immoral marriage to Herodias, Herod's sister-in-law. John's earthly prospects were a long imprisonment followed by a cruel death. Or maybe Jesus would set up the kingdom on earth and free John to serve in it. After all, John was the messenger who preceded the king's arrival. Some of John's disciples visited him to keep him up to speed with Jesus' progress in setting up the kingdom. And so we read in verse 18, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John was getting reports about Jesus, and they troubled him to a certain extent. There seemed to be no plan to establish the kingdom on earth. No army was being drafted. No one was being trained in camps. Just a group of itinerant ministers, most of whom were fishermen. John wondered if Jesus were the coming one. It's a technical term meaning the one that should come or the Messiah who is promised on the pages of the Old Testament. If Jesus was the coming one, where and when was the kingdom? Hey, if I'm John and I had announced the coming of the king and, and, and knew in my heart that it was Jesus and now I'm in prison, I'm thinking that the way to inaugurate the kingdom on earth is a jailbreak. Jesus will come with his army, and they'll break into the 
fortress of uh, Macarius there, and they'll break him out of jail, and, and then it'll be on. But that wasn't happening. And so John, out of the disciples that came, he took two of them aside, I believe, so that the others wouldn't be discouraged maybe, and he sent them to, to the Lord with the question. And so in verse 20, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Now, the sense I get is that this is all happening at the same time. They arrive in the middle of all these various healings and deliverances and miracles, and then they ask their question in that context. And so they ask a question that really did not need to be asked. Jesus was performing the works that only the coming one could perform. The healings and deliverances were credentials, identifying him as the one who should come. The works he was doing were a uniform that only the Messiah could wear. Verse 22, Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus' answer is more than a review of His mighty works. It was a compilation of several quotes from the book of the prophet Isaiah, listing the various works of the coming one, the Jewish Messiah. Jesus was telling them to tell John that He was indeed fulfilling Scripture. Now, why not just turn to them and say, yes, I'm that guy, I'm the one? Well, for one thing, Scripture is always more reliable than miracles, signs, and wonders. Whatever anyone does, even Jesus, must be judged by the written Word of God. And so, Jesus is giving us an example to follow. Yes, He was the one, but instead of just saying that, making that declaration, He tied His life and ministry and works into the Word of God, and He said, this is what's happening. This is the scriptural foundation for it. This is what's going on. And you know, that is just so just basic and rock solid for a Christian. You should have a, a, a word foundation, a scriptural foundation, a biblical foundation for everything that you do that is spiritual. If something is happening that really isn't in God's Word, then it may not be from God and probably isn't. Every few months, it seems, but certainly every few years, some movement sweeps through the church some whacked-out, hyper-Pentecostal movement. People are down barking like dogs or laughing like crazy. And, 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 and people have to twist and challenge the Scriptures to say that it really is in God's Word. And then they finally say, well, who cares if it's in God's Word? It's happening, isn't it? It must be from the Lord, even Jesus wanted scriptural verification for what he was doing. The apostles, the same thing. When Peter got up on the day of Pentecost, that's the big day. Everybody points to Pentecost, tongues of fire, speaking in tongues. And Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. He says, I can give you a scriptural basis for what we're doing. It's right out of the Bible. There seems to be a disconnect in some people between the Bible and the moving of the Holy Spirit as if 
to bring in the Bible somehow quenches the Holy Spirit. Not at all. It enhances the work that He wants to do. And so that's one reason. For another thing, Jesus is intimating that their expectations of the kingdom on earth might not be completely scriptural. It was commonly thought that the coming one would have to lead a military overthrow of Rome. But that was an unscriptural conclusion and interpretation based on their expectations rather than the Word of God. And so if you're a first century Jew and you're reading the Old Testament, you're thinking, okay, the kingdom of God is coming. It's a real literal kingdom on the earth, but we're in subjection to the Roman Empire. The Messiah is going to have to come and destroy Rome. How do you destroy Rome? Well, you destroy it with an army. And so they were ready for this conquering Messiah to come and gather an army and, and go to battle. And as a result of that, they were missing a lot of what Jesus was talking about. Even John the Baptist was confused. And then Jesus added this disclaimer, verse 23, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Offended could be translated stumbled. The idea is that you become troubled about what Jesus is doing, and you are then hindered in your spiritual progress. The idea of stumbling is you're walking along and then you trip and fall. If you're walking with the Lord, you're stumbled by something and you're not making progress anymore. The Lord recognized that expectations that are not entirely scriptural can stumble His followers. Jesus said, some of the things I'm saying and doing are stumbling you because you are not expecting them. And I'm right and you're not. And so we're going to have to get into a more scriptural way of looking at things. And he was bringing them back to the Word of God. Now, if we fast forward to ourselves, and if we are honest with ourselves, I think we must admit that we have this exact same problem. We see the works Jesus is capable of doing, and we see what He's already done for us. But then we'll find ourselves in some new and unusual circumstance, and we can easily begin to wonder what Jesus is doing because He doesn't work it out the way we think He ought to work it out. The healing doesn't come. The deliverance doesn't come. Something doesn't make sense to us about why we're in that circumstance. And so we get stumbled. We expect Jesus to work a certain way. When He doesn't, we're stumbled. Jesus wants to do exceedingly above and beyond what we ask or think. He wants to exceed our expectations, but He often does it in a spiritual way rather than in the physical and material way in which we're asking or thinking about. You've got a problem, and Jesus wants to give you His grace that is sufficient to see you through it. But if you are expecting to be delivered out of it, you're going to be stumbled. We can be just like John and his disciples. We can be right in the middle of Jesus doing a mighty work, but still we're asking, Lord, are you the one? Jesus is down raising the dead, healing lepers. Blind people can see, the deaf can hear. All manner of affliction is being taken care of and wiped out. Demons are being cast out of people. And because he's in prison and doesn't understand what Jesus is doing in his life, John says, are you the Messiah? I can't connect 
with what I think about you and what's happening in my life, even though I'm asking you in the context of the most amazing outflow of power the world had ever known to that point. And, and it's really the same with us, and it's almost comical if we could understand it. The next time, or maybe right now, you're in some trial, some, something that is, is really serious to you. Look around. Look in the Scripture, look around, and you will see that Jesus has done and is doing mighty works. And He is working in and through your life, just not in the way that you're expecting. But He's promised you grace that is sufficient for your every need. And many times that is grace to suffer, grace to endure, grace to go on, beyond the point when you say, I can't take it anymore. The Lord says, I know that. Of course you can't take it anymore. That's why you're filled with the Spirit. That's why I'm pouring out my Spirit in your life. That's why you need grace. Jesus is the one. Make sure your expectations are scriptural. Become familiar with His style, with the Jesus style of ministry. Believers can be stumbled by this. What about unbelievers? Well, in verses 24 through 35, don't let yourself be stymied by the Jesus style if you're an unbeliever. Jesus used the occasion of their visit as a teaching tool. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury, they're in the king's courts. Now, if you're thinking like a first century Jew and you're expecting the coming one to come and establish God's kingdom on the earth, these verses will make more sense to you. You're thinking of kings and kingdoms in the traditional sense. You're maybe like the wise men who come looking for Jesus, the, the birth of, of this one, following the star. They immediately go where? To Herod, to the temple or to the, to the palace because that's where kings hang out. All the while, Jesus is born out in the fields, being announced and heralded by angels to a group of shepherds. Do you understand? It's, it's just not at all what you expect. And so, the messenger had come to announce the coming of the king. But when he did, he did it in a desert place and not a palace at all. The people had flocked to John out in the wilderness, there was just a power in his words and in his ministry that they couldn't deny. And so they were out in the wilderness. They didn't go there to check out the seasonal reeds that were being blown in the wind. It wasn't like a, a day trip, you know, honey, you want to go on the Blossom Trail this afternoon? They, they went there because they were led by God. And when they got there, there was no gorgeously apparelled messenger, there was no king's courts. There was just John and the Jordan River, and yet they submitted to the baptism of John. So right away, you're starting to get a feeling that this kingdom is something much different than you are thinking about. And so through the ministry of John, God was preparing them for the kingdom, but the physical kingdom on earth was not the essential feature. Yes, it's real. Yes, God's going to establish it, but it is not essential. They must first themselves be prepared through faith and repentance by receiving the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Everything that happened was perfectly consistent with God's promises in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is giving a tremendous word of encouragement. He says in verse 26, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. John was more than a prophet because he was the unique prophet who was sent to announce the actual physical appearance of the Messiah. He was the messenger who immediately preceded the king. The messenger was here. The king was on scene. Where was the promised kingdom? Well, Jesus says in verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So Jesus is still talking as if there is a kingdom. It's just not the kind of kingdom at this point that they were expecting. We can look back with scriptural insight and spiritual hindsight and see that the Jews rejected the offer of the physical kingdom on earth at Jesus' first coming. In a minute, we'll see the Pharisees and lawyers, some of the leaders, reject the will of God. And so, Jesus did not establish the physical kingdom at His first coming. And we look back and we know it resulted in a temporary halt in God's prophetic plan. The kingdom of God on earth will wait now until Jesus' second coming. In between, the Lord would establish something new, His church on the earth comprised of Jews and Gentiles. And that explains how it is that Jesus can say, He who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. The believers in the church age are greater in their privileges and position than the greatest Old Testament saint. You have more privilege and more position than Abraham and Moses and all those that preceded the coming of Jesus Christ. It's kind of a mind blower, isn't it? You're not greater than them in any, you know, sense of, of God having favorites or anything like that, but you're greater in your position. You're greater in your privileges as a New Testament believer. And then in verse 29, when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, think about this for a minute. Those who had been baptized by John were probably more stumbled than John himself. John had come along, called people out to the wilderness to repent for the remission of their sins, to be baptized. The king was at hand. They did this. The religious leaders told them not to. They refused to do it themselves, but multitudes of people did. What's the result? John's in prison. The Roman government put him in prison. He's going to die there or have his head cut off. One of the two, die of old age or he's going to be cruelly killed. If John was in prison and there was no visible kingdom, what good was this baptism they'd submitted to? What Jesus had just explained, they were still in God's will, still in God's plan. This is sometimes the essential thing that a Christian needs to know. Someone comes to you, they're struggling, they're hurting in some way, something's going on in their life. They don't know what God is doing. You don't know what God is doing either. Don't pretend that you do, but you know God is doing it. You know that God is sovereign. You know that God loves them. You know that God who began a good work in them is performing it, completing it in them. And the encouragement that you can give another Christian 
is to step back and see the bigger picture. In the big scheme of things, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God is working in and through your circumstances. And that's how a person can go back into the battle. Nothing changed except their heart and the understanding that God is with them. And that's what the Lord was doing. It says here, they justified God. That means that after listening to Jesus, they acknowledged the wisdom of God's plan. Instead of being stumbled by their expectations, even the worst sinners among them, the tax collectors, were excited about the work of God. Now, we always like to make fun of modern tax collectors, the IRS. But these guys, kind of different. These tax collectors would be Jews who had become tax collectors and were considered traitors to their own people. I mean, you, they, you were hated if you were a tax collector. You were the worst, lowest of all sinners. They had submitted to John's baptism, and they were excited to hear from Jesus that that was part of God's will and part of God's plan. Unbelievers, however, were stymied by this apparent change. They weren't about to move. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. Lawyers is a reference to specialists in Jewish religious matters. These unbelievers had refused to be baptized by John. They thought themselves righteous by their own good works, by keeping the law. You know that they were happy when John was put in prison. It seemed to affirm that John was wrong and they were right. Can you imagine after John was imprisoned, bumping into some of these guys in the, you know, farmer's market? Yeah, I told you not to be baptized by John. What a loser you are. Where's your hero now? Where's the kingdom now? You need to stick with us. We're the guys that know what's going on. If you don't think that was happening, you don't know human nature. And so these guys felt justified, and so they rejected the will of God. They were in a quandary now because Jesus had come along, and Jesus was worse than John. More people were following him, and he was doing amazing miracles, and so all they could do was criticize. And Jesus summed up their criticism of both he and John. Beginning in verse 31, he says, the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. As I said, this really was a playground taunt. It describes spoiled brats who would not join other children unless they could choose the game. Some commentators actually call this the parable of the brats, and I like that for some reason. And so the idea is that these kids are saying, hey, let's play wedding. Let's play the flute and play wedding. No, we don't want to play that game. We want to play funeral where we all mourn. Okay, let's play funeral where we all mourn. No, we want to play wedding now. And Jesus said, this, this is the high and mighty Pharisee. That's what they're like. They're like spoiled brats on the playground who, you know, the modern equivalent of is they just, hey, that's my ball. I'm going to take it. And then you're, you're done playing volleyball because they took their ball because they can't get their way. They can't be the captain of the team or whatever it is. And Jesus applied this to the brat pack of Pharisees and lawyers. He says in verse 33, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you said, Ah, he's got a demon. 
Then the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. By the way, just a quick note, if all you get out of this verse is, Jesus drank, then you have a drinking problem. But I just, I'll just leave. <laughs> Unbelievers had criticized John's simple and admittedly weird lifestyle, living out in the desert all by himself, wearing these, you know, scratchy garments, eating locusts, dipping them in honey and just chomping on those things. They said, man, that guy, he might even be demon-possessed. Sure, there's spiritual things going on, but it's, it's from the devil. And so then Jesus came along just the opposite of John. Instead of sinners going out to him as they had with John, Jesus went to them. There's episodes in the Scripture where Jesus said, hey, I'm coming to your house to dinner tonight. That's cool. The Lord just invited himself over for dinner. And he went to their homes, the homes of sinners, and he ate with them. And so he, accused, uh, he was accused of drunkenness and gluttony and having questionable relationships. After all, if you went to the home of sinners, you know what sinners do in their homes. Jesus is in their homes. Hey, you do the math. And, and so they're thinking, well, Jesus must be a drunkard. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's just sitting there, you know, eating and drinking, having immoral relationships with sinners. And then how sad, because you read Jesus' encounters in these homes and the, the healings and the deliverances and the joy that He brought to these people. And, and, but that's the best that they could do, uh, is, is to say, well, he, hang, he, hungs out, he hung out with sinners, so He must be a sinner Himself. Unbelievers didn't like the Jesus style of ministry. You know, there's still plenty of that going on today. Unbelievers often hang on tenaciously to one particular criticism of Jesus that isn't really warranted. He let someone they love die is one of the reasons I hear a lot. You start talking to somebody about the Lord, and, or usually they don't tell you, usually it's a family member, say, well, you, you really can't talk to him about the Lord because he's mad at God because his wife died or her husband died or a child died. And it's like, oh, that's it. They, they've decided in that one event in their life that God is so unfair to allow a person that they loved to die that they don't want to have anything to do with God. And any talk or thought of God is cut off at that point. Here's another one. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. Okay, well, that's it. There you go. No use talking about eternal life because Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, and then that's an undeniable fact. And so I don't have to read the Bible. I don't have to see that the daily news is filled with Bible prophecy. I don't have to know that Jesus is coming back. I'm just going to live my life with these blinders on, knowing that the world is full of Christian hypocrites. Of course, I'm a hypocrite, but I'm not as bad as Christian hypocrites because I don't claim to be a Christian. Then there's, the Bible is full of errors and contradictions. Really? How'd you come to that conclusion? The Bible is filled with errors and contradictions. <laughs> Can you give me one? The Bible is filled with errors. It's like that FedEx commercial where the alien is wearing a mask. Have you seen that one? I love that commercial. <laughs> These guys come in. Have you seen that commercial? Who's seen that commercial? That is a fantastic commercial. These guys come in and they go, we know who you are, and there's this alien dripping, and, you know, he's just, you know, just, and he's got a flat mask of a guy's face, 
And all it says is, why don't you use FedEx? Over and over again in a recording. And the boss comes in and, and he says, hey, we're going to get this package. And the, he goes, why don't you use FedEx? And he goes, great idea, Charles, you know, or whatever and stuff. And, and this is what these people are like. The Bible is full of contradictions. They don't know a one. Now, there aren't any, but even if there were, they don't know what they are. They've just been told that. And so there are, there, and there are a million other excuses, but there's, there are these one-dimensional excuses. In Jesus' time, it was, ah, oh, Jesus is a drunk. He's a, a glutton. Don't have anything to do with Him. Today, we have our own excuses. Jesus' answer to the unbelievers in His audience is interesting. He said in verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. The children of wisdom would be believers, those who have trusted in the Lord for salvation, God's wisdom is acknowledged when you see the radical changes a relationship with Jesus brings in a person's life. The power of a changed life cannot be criticized with any real success. It only always exposes an unbeliever as a fool. Favorite example of this in Scripture, the man who was born blind, healed by Jesus. They drag him in, the religious leaders to try and find a reason to accuse Jesus. How sad. Do you, are you grieved with how sad this is? That, that, that here people are being raised from the dead and then the Jewish leaders want them killed? People are receiving their sight and they want to figure out a way to kick them out of the synagogue so that they don't have to deal with these miracles. And so they call this guy in and they're hammering him with all these different angles. And finally the guy says, Look, all I know is I was blind and now I see. There was a radical, undeniable transformation that it took place in his life. Now, they still didn't receive the Lord. They kicked him out, but at least they were exposed for the frauds that they were. And that's what the Lord is getting at here. He's saying, you know, th there is an undeniable change that takes place in a person's life when they come into a relationship with me. Tucked away in here is an exhortation for us as believers to actually live out these radical changes that the indwelling Holy Spirit makes in our life. But even when we fall short, and we will, and even when you fail, and we will, wisdom is still justified because Jesus forgives you your sin, and you can begin again. Jesus' style among unbelievers is to expose their sin and self-righteousness and then immediately offer them His righteousness as a free gift of grace. People reject the Jesus style because they want to believe they are inherently good and that they can do enough good works to merit or earn heaven. They are spoiled brats who refuse to join God's children because they want to save themselves rather than admit they are hopelessly, eternally lost in sin. It's as if the church is, is just enjoying a relationship with the Lord, saying, hey, come in just by grace through faith. And they're like, no, we want to do some good works to come to know God. We want to knock on doors. We want to ride bicycles all over the world. <laughs> we want to pass out magazines that don't make any sense. We want to light incense uh, to a little fat man. You know, we want to, whatever it is. <laughs> it's like, you know, you ever, you're the church, like, hey, you're the children of God. We're having a great time over here. No, you're not. <laughs> you don't know. It. Uh, we're good. 
and you're bad. And the Bible's full of contradictions. There, nanny, nanny. And, and, and you just, they're like spoiled brats. How sad. What they can't argue with is the power of your changed life. The two most profound things to me in all the world when it comes to witnessing, the power of a changed life and the prophecy that is fulfilled in the Bible. They are undeniable truths. People still deny them, but they do it out of ignorance because they love darkness rather than light. If you are a believer, are you disappointed with the way God has worked or is working in your life? Don't be stumbled. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You are daily being conformed into the image of Jesus. You are predestined to be like the Lord one day. You will awaken His likeness. If, if you're disappointed and stumbled, you're like the John and his apostles or his disciples who are watching the Lord do these amazing things and still asking, are you the one? Can you help me in any way? Don't be that way. If you're an unbeliever, get in the game. Quit standing on the sidelines criticizing the Lord and His work with some lame excuse. It's possible to reject the will of God for yourself. How sad it is because God's will is that you come to repentance rather than perish eternally. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for Your Word, filled as it is with hope and the wonder of Your love and a relationship with You. I pray, Lord, that in some measure, small or large, by the ministry of your Spirit, we've come into a, a new or, or at least a, a better understanding of your love, mercy, and grace. We want to be a people that are all about Jesus, about sharing Him with others, about knowing Him in our own lives, about living with Him and for Him in a living, vital, personal relationship. We want to be all about the law of love, Lord. That's the only law that we want to know anything about. Because when we love you and love others as ourselves, then we're fulfilling every other command. And so I pray, Lord, that you would enrich and encourage us today. Beyond that, Lord, that you would fill us with your Spirit. The early church frequently asked for fresh fillings of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for myself and each and every one of your children here today, all the believers, Lord, that your spirit would fall upon us fresh and new. Lord, if there are unbelievers, I pray that they would come forward and speak to the men that are here after our service and that they would give their hearts and lives to you, that they'd get in the game, Lord, that they'd give up their lame excuses, that they'd know this morning that they've been in your presence, that you're the one that is speaking to their hearts about getting right with you both now and forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said amen. Let's stand together. Tonight, seven, uh, 6 o'clock, we'll be in here. Come and join us. It's a great time just worshiping the Lord. Keep the Peru team in prayer, not just starting Wednesday when they leave, but every day and all through the day. This is a real spiritual work that is going on. It's not a bunch of people just traveling to uh, South America. This is, this is spiritual. There will be spiritual warfare. There will be obstacles to overcome, but we trust the Lord to do that. So keep them in prayer. May God bless and keep you. Amen.
Jesus, draw me close, closer to Draw me close. 